Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, often we feel like this world is full of darkness still. People talk at this time of year about a great light that has been shining on us. The angels cry, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, but we don't feel much peace. Would you shine that light on us to give us eyes to see the path back to peace with you and peace in this world, peace with one another. Make your spirit known in a mighty way that we would leave here filled with your peace. Peace that can only come in Christ. Amen. Sounding a little bit like a beauty pageant contestant, the longing of all of our hearts is world peace. World peace. It's such a joke when you hear someone say that, not because it's not what we want, but because it seems so ridiculously unattainable, right? What is this peace really? Everyone has a different idea of peace, and how could we ever work together to experience such a marvelous state of existence? Saying that I desire world peace just seems intellectually lazy because it doesn't take more than 60 seconds of thought to realize that our world is so complex. It just seems like a ridiculous notion to expect. But deep down in every one of you, your heart longs for peace. We all want it, but we can't seem to find it. We think, Maybe if our circumstances changed, if I had a spouse, if I had children, a different job, a nicer home, a better church, greater health, then I would have the peace that my heart longs for. But since we're unable to change our circumstances, we feel hopeless, waiting for someone else to come and bring us our despairing solution to our despair. This is the Tragic story of God's people throughout the whole Bible. This is the aching now of Zechariah's heart leading up to these incredible events 2,000 years ago. In this ancient world, life is so difficult. And it's worse for him now because in his old age, he's had no children with his wife to pass on an inheritance. And they live in a land occupied by a powerful pagan oppressor As a priest in the line of Aaron, Zechariah knows his Bible well, and he knows promises like Psalm 84.11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He's been trying to walk uprightly, and he looks all around him and sees nothing but conflict. Many good things are being withheld from him. And then, without notice, God shows up. God arrives on the scene and reveals to Zechariah that the longing for peace that his heart has is imminent. It's coming any moment. God promises him a son who will usher in the peacemaker, the Messiah, the King of Israel. These words from our text today burst forth from Zechariah's lips as he realizes what God is doing. Zechariah sees... Our main point, in Christ, God has broken into our conflict to light our path, to lead us on the path of peace. 
in this newborn king, God is showing us the way to peace. But it wouldn't come as Zechariah expected, as anyone expected. And if our hearts are set in the wrong place, we are going to miss that experience of peace ourselves. In Zechariah's prophecy, we find out what kind of peace it is that He has promised to bring us. What peace arrives in the coming of Jesus. So, in the first few verses, 67-75, to we're going to look backwards with Zechariah at the promise of peace. Where did all this conflict come from? And what has God been promising along the way to bring resolution? Then in verses 76-79, to He'll shine the light on the path of peace in Christ. Which direction do we go to arrive at this place of peace? Then finally, we'll conclude this morning applying this peace to the church. We who are called to be a people of peace. Walking together along this path lighted by Christ. So let's start in verse 67 and look back at these promises of peace. Zechariah says, after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouths of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to Remember His holy covenant. The oath He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Finally, after the birth of His son John, I waited His whole life for The first words out of Zechariah's mouth are nothing but praise and blessing to God. Think of the emotion he must be feeling at this moment when he starts to speak. For 400 years or more, God has not spoken to His people. Since they returned from exile out of Babylon and they're back in the land, they haven't heard from God and they've been under foreign occupation ever since. From the Persians, from the Greeks, and now the Romans. They haven't had freedom, independence, and prosperity since the time of David and Solomon a thousand years ago. Israel is not the land of flourishing that they expected. But now there's this sudden outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came upon Mary to conceive of the Messiah in her womb. The Spirit came upon Elizabeth a few months before John was born to lead her to praise God that she got to meet the mother of her King, her Lord, her Creator. Before that, the Spirit visited Zechariah in the temple, whispering to him that he's going in his old age. He and Elizabeth are going to bear the forerunner to the Messiah. Incredible promises from God. He's finally speaking, and yet even with this outpouring of the Spirit, Zechariah didn't believe it. All of these years of conflict had hardened his heart and made him cynical. So God made him mute for nine months. He couldn't talk. 
He couldn't explain to people what he had heard. He couldn't describe this humiliation he feels. He just had to sit in silence until God proved faithful to His promises. And then His Son was born. It really happened. The Spirit fills Zechariah with finally loosening his lips and he bursts forth in praise to God. But before he can even explain what God is doing for his son, calling his son to, he has to praise God for his faithfulness to keep his promises. And not just his promises to him to have a child. He realizes in this moment that God is keeping his promises from the beginning of time. He wasn't coming just to fix Zechariah's conflict, but heal the wounds of the entire earth. In verse 68, Zechariah expresses this cosmic hope in God, saying that God has finally visited us and redeemed us. The word visited means more than simply showed up to say hi and hang out for a little while. It's a word that people use to come and visit someone who's really sick to stay with them. Or if you're in prison and you're in chains, you can't feed yourself. Someone would come and visit you to take care of you. But God wasn't just coming to make our life in chains more comfortable. He came to redeem us, to liberate us, to free us. And now, He's doing it through a horn of salvation. In verse 69, a horn of salvation born from the house of His servant David. Someone is going to be born in the line of King David just as God had promised a thousand years ago who would rule over the whole earth. The word horn is symbolic throughout the Old Testament for a powerful king of a nation. And for too long, the horns of other nations have been oppressing Israel. But now, finally, a horn is rising up out of Israel to conquer them all. Just as God had promised. Zechariah, the weariness of all of this conflict, finally sees that salvation is coming. He wants the salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, he says in verse 71. Verse 74, again, he longs to be redeemed, delivered from the hand of our enemies. All he wants is to serve God without fear. For so long, they've had to constantly look over their shoulder and watch out for what conflict was coming next. Waking up every single day wondering, what tragedy is going to befall me today? It wasn't a problem just in his time. He says this is an ancient conflict told in verse 70 through the holy prophets from of old. Starting all the way back in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned and they invited this pervasive conflict into the world and they were kicked out of the garden to toil and strive in pain through every aspect of life. And it only spread everywhere. We see the conflict all over the place. Cain and Abel fighting. Wickedness covering the earth in the days of Noah. Confusion at the Tower of Babel. Jacob and Esau fighting each other for prominence. Nation then fighting against nation. Israel quarreling with Egypt. Israel in conflict with the Canaanites. Israel then in conflict with themselves. Israel in conflict with Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Persia, Rome. Everywhere. Always 
fighting and never finding peace. I know that many of you feel that way in your own lives. You feel like you're always battling every day and you never find rest. You endure through trials, but what is the hope you hold on to? Why even continue? Is peace possible? Throughout history, however, God has always been there. Still working to promise them that He is doing something incredible to lead them back to the place of peace that Adam and Eve once had. He's going to restore all things. He told Adam and Eve He would crush the serpent, crush death so they could return one day. Verse 73, Zechariah recalls the oath, the promise to Abraham. Abraham called out to come back into the presence of God to restore a people in peace. He promised Israel and her king that they would be a mighty nation that would lead the whole world to peace. God was with them the whole time, but every stage it came up empty. True peace was never accomplished. There was a thread of hope alive, but still conflict at every turn. What was it that changed the moment John the Baptist was born? That filled Zechariah with such excitement What is it that we celebrate every Christmas that gives us reason to hope in peace again? Let's go back to verse 76. We'll see this light shining on our path to peace. Zechariah continues, And you, child, you, child, who be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, His path. What is this path? What are the ways? It's to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way, the path of peace. Zechariah's recounting the history of Israel's conflict and the promise of God to restore them to peace, he holds his newborn son in his hands, marveling that his family gets to be used to usher in Isaiah's Prince of Peace. He can't believe that his own son, who he never thought he would have, is Malachi's prophet that would announce the arrival of the victorious king. Not our Malachi hunt. But this peace isn't going to come through fighting and striving. Peace is going to come through humble submission, surrender, in order to resolve an even greater conflict. We need to understand what kind of peace it is that God is bringing. Peace is so much more than just an absence of conflict. Zechariah lived in a time that historians now call Pax Romana. It's Latin for Roman peace. At this time, the Greeks and the Romans had done incredible things to bring flourishing to the known world. They unified trade under one common language. 
They built road systems all over the place so you could travel freely across the empire. And they, they organized all of these warring nations under one unified government system. The most prosperous time in history up to that point, and yet people all over the empire knew this was a tenuous peace. You had relative freedom as long as you didn't upset the Roman authorities. Zechariah lived in that kind of peace, but his heart longed for more. We too live in a country of a similar relative peace. We haven't had wars fought in our land for over a hundred years. You can travel freely, buy and sell. You can pursue a lifestyle of your choice, but divorce rates, drug use, suicide rates reveal that we are not a people at peace. Peace is more than just absence of conflict that our circumstances fit together the way we prefer. Peace is not resigning to the unhappy circumstances and grinding it out in silence. True peace is a restoration to wholeness. The Hebrews had a word, shalom, for peace. Shalom meant so much more. It symbolized this Return to the garden where everything was restored. Where humanity was designed to flourish. People working in harmony. Cultivating life under the care of our generous God. Peace is working in unified, joyful partnership together. Imaging God Himself in His joyful work. Not just putting up with each other, but delighting in each other. True world peace is a complete reversal of history. Turning the clock of history back to return to the order of the garden. Zechariah saw that this moment had come. For so long, the path back to the garden had been dark. And now the light is shining on the path back to Shalom. Verse 79 recalls Psalm 23. Life was like walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He recalls Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 9 that this child to be born would shine a light on people sitting in the darkness. God's Word made flesh has come to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The path back to peace. But the greatest obstacle on this path is not nations fighting against one another, It's nations working together to fight against God. Zechariah knows in verse 77 that salvation isn't coming just from nations. Salvation is forgiveness of sins. Satan would love to unite the world in peace as long as we are united against God. But we need to be Rescued from God. We need to make peace with God because He has every right to show up and crush us in our rebellion. But we are in no place to negotiate a peace treaty with the God of the universe. Typically, a king arriving back in his land full of rebels is not good news. It's not good news that the king has just been born when everybody's rebelling against Him. Because this means punishment for every single person, including you and me. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve destruction because the conflict that we experience is our fault. We bring sin into the world. God has no part in it. And yet, because He wants peace with us, He made a way Himself to make a treaty. We need someone to come and mediate between God and humanity. Someone who can make this treaty with us. Who represents God in His perfect holiness, but also stands with us in our weak, frail flesh. Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, gets to announce the arrival of this God-man who will visit us from on high. He tells us in verse 78, even from which direction He will come, from the sunrise. They refer to the sunrise as the east. That's how they refer to the eastern direction. Look to the east to see God come and bring peace back to us. If you study the eastern direction throughout Scripture, it actually creates a roadmap for us to lead us on the path back to peace. Back in Genesis, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden when they joined Satan's rebellion. In which direction were they kicked out? To the east. Cain murdered his brother and God said, you will be exiled to the land of Nod in the east. After a little while, people got a little tired of living in the east, they said, no, we're going back and we're going to force our way into God's presence. So Genesis 11 tells us people came out of the east to build for themselves a tower that by their own power, their own wisdom, they would make their way back into God's presence. But they can't do it because they are sinners. You can't have sin in God's presence, so God turns them away back to the east to live among the sinful people. And it's in Genesis 12 that things take an incredible turn. God calls Abram out of Ur, a city in the east, to come to a new land that sounds very much like a flourishing, prosperous garden. In Abraham, God is setting the stage, revealing a little bit of the path back to His presence. But even Abram, Abraham and his family couldn't remain there. With God. They ended up in Egypt for 400 years, they too suffering in silent slavery. But God rescued them out of Egypt. He's going to do it again. He's going to show them the path through many powerful miracles, pulls them out of the land, leads them through the wilderness up to the Jordan River to cross over into the land of peace. You ever wonder? Why in the world God led them on this long winding path all the way up around to the east side of the land? Why didn't they just take the direct route southwest? Because to enter into God's presence, you need to come from the east. The temple, the tabernacle, always faced east. It represented to leave God's presence is to go east and to come back to God's presence needs to turn around and come from the east. And so later, when the people rebelled and Babylon came, they came out of the east, took the people of Israel with them back to the land of sinners. But in Zechariah's day, they're finally back in the land. They came out of the east. They're in the land, but still no peace. What happened? They made it to the land, but... God wasn't there. Because when they were in exile, Ezekiel had a vision that God left the temple. He went out of the eastern gate 
God went to go find His people. God's people were unable to make their way back. It was too dark. They were too blind. They were too sinful. So He Himself went out on a rescue mission to go get them. And now He has arrived to lead the way back in. This is what Zechariah is so excited about. God is shining the light from the east back into His presence. The peace is so close and the birth of Christ is the birth of one who shines light into his darkness. And you see it happen when a star rises in the east. And these wise men make the long journey out of the east. And when they arrive in Bethlehem, there they are sitting in the presence of God Himself. God in Christ is lighting the path for all nations to return to Him. But the peace treaty won't be ratified until the child is grown and he signs the covenant in his own blood. Our path to peace is fully illuminated in the final week of Jesus' life. On Palm Sunday, the king enters Jerusalem from in the eastern gate from the Mount of Olives to these shouts, Hosanna! Salvation has come! The peace is near! But it didn't come through fighting as they thought. It would come through surrender. At the end of the week, Christ leaves the Garden of Gethsemane in the east, enters the gate one more time to die on a cross as a rebel. The only person in history who had the right to walk right through the eastern gate of God's presence and say, I'm home, instead was turned away by the Father kicked out of God's presence to die as one of us rebels. But three days later, He rose from the dead, conquering death, conquering rebellion, giving all who trust in Him His righteousness, giving them His Spirit so He can walk with us along the path to peace until the day when God's full presence comes back down And fully restores this planet into that garden peace. Lord, haste that day. Until then, we keep on walking with barely enough light to shine on the path in front of us, waiting for the day He comes back. But we don't wait in utter silence as Zechariah did. We don't wait without hope. We don't wait without a down payment a promise that we can have peace today, right now. As in Christ, we together become a people of peace. We, the church, are a people of peace. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4 that all of this striving, fighting to get into the promised land was simply a picture of the promised rest that we have in Christ. He has already conquered the promised land. He is the sword. This double-edged sword that goes before us and clears out the land so we can just walk in and have peace. And we can have it, he says, today. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you don't have peace, look to Christ. And it is yours. You shouldn't be able to leave here without your heart resting in Christ. Because He has conquered the land for you. 
Paul says in Romans 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding and guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's a peace that makes you into a people of peace who pursue peace together. Not just peace for yourself, but peace for everyone around you. The writers of the New Testament love to start their letters off with some greeting saying, grace to you and peace. The two go together. God has poured out His grace on you so you can be a peacemaker, so you can live at peace and live among a people of peace. The church is to be a representation of the Garden of Eden. A taste of heaven to come where people of all ages, all ethnicities, ethnicities come together and enjoy His peace, His fruitful partnership with one another. So Paul commands in Romans 12.18, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do whatever it takes to pursue peace together with everyone around you, especially those in your church family. Remember that peace isn't just an absence of conflict. It's joyful, unified partnership, cultivating life together, arm in arm, building up a garden experience. Not just getting along despite our differences, but fighting to overcome our differences. So Paul exhorts the Corinthians who are all divided. Don't just get along, but agree. He tells the same to the Philippians. Be of one mind. Think the same way. When the church gets together and votes on something, it should be unanimous because of the hard work they do to overcome their differences, to humble themselves and see through somebody else's eyes and say, I'm willing to see it your way. Just so we can be unified. That's the point of Philippians 2. We have this mind among ourselves because Christ did that for us. He emptied Himself. He saw from a divine perspective everything. But instead, gave it up. Came down to see through our eyes. Not because we were right. We had a better perspective but because He wanted to walk unified with us on the path of peace. When you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've been commanded and equipped to pursue peace. If we ever feel frustration, bitterness, discontentment, disagreement with anyone in the body, we are responsible to go and make peace. Not just resigning to our differences, getting along even though we're not happy, but joyfully pursuing a unified vision together. This is our witness to the world. We do this so then together, as a people of peace, we can go into the darkness. We can walk arm in arm out to the east and go rescue people, shining the light of Christ on their path. And there are no obstacles. Paul says in Ephesians 2, The blood of Christ has torn down every barrier. There is nobody too far gone, no relationship too broken that Christ cannot restore. We get the privilege of bringing those who are far off near to God by lighting their path with the Word of God as a lamp unto their feet. Friends, this Christmas and every Christmas is a 
yearly reminder that God has brought peace to us. Beauty pageant contestants are prophets in our world telling us it's coming one day, it's coming. But we don't have to wait until Jesus returns. We can have that peace today with His Spirit in us and His Spirit among the gathered people. You can have it today if you pursue it among His people, building His church into a heavenly foretaste of that garden peace to come. And we can go and make that peace known in this world by bringing others into peace with God in Christ. Let's do that together. But first, let's pray. God, the world longs for all kinds of peace. And they're willing to fight to shut us down in order to get the peace they want as long as it's done in their way. God, help us to be a people of humble surrender to Your plan for peace. Carry us along and unify us. Let us not leave any stone unturned where there is conflict among us, but help us to pursue peace, to show the world what peace with God and Christ does to people of all sorts. God, make Redemption City Church a people of peace for the glory of our risen King. Amen.